On March 1, 1984, STCF hosted a panel moderated by James Furlong featuring Stuart Klein, Erica Monk, and John Simon. This conversation is an exciting window into the world of theater critics. Hello, I'm STC director Kathleen Marshall, and you are listening to STCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. By way of starting out, I just wanted to make two short points, and that is... When you work in the theater, everyone at times tends to gripe a bit about the critics. And uh, I think that we resent the power they have at times, but they're not the ones who take that power for themselves. We give it to them. And I think we have to respect the function they fulfill for us as historians. I think after reading Brooks Atkinson's obituary, we all got a sense of how important a critic is and how inextricably part of the theatrical community the critics are. So we're very happy that you can come here today and have this dialogue with us. Mr. Klein said uh, it's a very difficult topic to talk about, and it's uh, rarely discussed. But by way of opening, I wanted to ask you how you perceive of good direction. Is good direction to you direction which is seamless, invisible? Uh, one of the critics used that word to describe Mike Nichols' direction of the gin game a few years ago. Or is good direction direction which evidences a very strong consistent interpretation? Well, I think it's both. The director is the servant of the play. It is his job to interpret the play <clears throat> and through his choices of actors, of how they do their roles of scening, of scenery, of lighting, uh, of all the elements of a play, the director's job is to interpret it and hopefully serve the playwright and serve the uh, I think the best direction is often like the best acting. It's seamless. It is so right and so perfect that you don't notice it. Uh, there are times, of course, when you do notice it, uh, and it's good. Like uh, in Noises Off, the farce, where uh, this split-second timing, this incredible cohesion, uh, is so obviously work of excellent direction going along in serving that script that it wouldn't work without it. Um, I think a chorus line is an example of, quote, seamless direction, yet a direction that is so obvious in all its choices of lighting and dancing and character and all the qualities that go into it, that it works. So... Uh, Yes, it, it's a little bit of both, but I think essentially I like the word seamless. But you do notice most of all when direction doesn't work. Then you suddenly notice direction. Uh, 
And how does that show itself when it does? Well, you, you know, you think of cases. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a production of uh, uh, Shakespeare's uh, Julius Caesar. Think of the title. Mark Anthony stood up, and he was played by an actor who was five foot three with a high voice, and he screamed. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, and stamped his foot. Now, what was the director thinking of when he chose that man to play Mark Anthony? It was this serving Shakespeare? Was this interpreting the play? Uh, there was a production of Macbeth at Lincoln Center, where the opening scene, the three witches come out, and one of the witches is a man. Is this serving the play? Is this creating truth? I don't know. You sit there and you say, what is he doing? It, you, you're not, it's not seamless. Uh, currently on Broadway, in the rink, uh, the, the construction crew in this musical suddenly dons drag and plays the role, plays the roles of women dancing. Now, I can see no reason whatsoever for these men to play women. I don't know why they do it, unless the producer is just trying to save money. But <laughs> these are examples where it seems to me the direction sticks out because it's wrong. I think there are two totally separate questions because there are two sort of rigid basic kinds of directors. There are directors are also creating a specific kind of theater. Tend to be the directors I've been most interested in, the voice. Many of John's John's least favorite people, I think of Joe Chaikin and Richard Foreman. And those people obviously aren't supposed to be seen, but they're doing some other function entirely. And many of them are now starting to direct plays from the standard repertoire. At that point, they often become concept directors. Simple. <laughs> and there, I can't say that's a good function or a bad function. It depends on whether the ideas are intelligent, whether they mean something, and whether they're beautifully executed. I, mean, I see so many different functions for directors beyond the Broadway commercial that it's a very hard question to answer. I also think that it's interesting now that a number of playwrights are starting to direct their own work. It's a delicate subject here, but it has to come up at some point. You know? And that has to do, I think, with directors not serving new texts, not bothering to understand them, or at least understanding them in a way that the author doesn't like. We'd have to go much more into specifics about types. I agree with everything Erica and Stuart said. I can just add one small thing, which is that by and large, and only by and large, if a play is realistic or naturalistic, it helps if the direction isn't particularly noticeable, except in terms of smoothness. But 
generally speaking, if a play is a stylized, poetic, um, heightened kind of play of some sort, then there is room for the direction to be eminently noticeable. And, uh, however, it has to be noticeable in the right way. Now, what the right way is depends on the play, of course, and to some extent on the times in which the play is being done or the circumstances. But I think so both of those things are right uh, for the direction to show or for the direction not to show, depending on the condition. Well, since you brought up this question about writers directing uh, their own scripts, that was on my list. So how do you feel about that? I mean, do you think writers are getting better at directing their own scripts? Certainly some have had success with it, and they're few and far between. I don't know if they're getting better because... I don't remember 10 and 15 and 20 years ago seeing uh -huh. a lot of writers directing their own scripts if what they were writing was basically scripts somehow in the realistic tradition. You didn't see very much of that when I thought. Uh -huh. But I thought uh, Fool for Love was wonderful directed, better than any separate I've seen in New York of, of the recent plays. And then the experimental people like Irene Fornes, you can't even sort out the direction of the script and the image in the words. It's all one thing. But I think that I think that a, a playwright ought to know how to direct, ought to have an idea of how her or his play should look on the stage. And if they can do it, more power to them. And if a director can do the play better, mm -hmm. that will be Actually, I'm much older to my misfortune than Erica is, and so I remember things that she couldn't possibly remember. But it is in the 30s and 40s, actually, there was a great deal of directing by authors, people like Noel Coward, people like John Van Druten, and usually the sophisticated, polished kind of playwrights uh, tended to direct their own plays whenever possible because they felt nobody else could polish them up the way they did, and, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's, it's up to the playwright. If a playwright feels that he is um, inspired or talented or, what should I say, uh, if it's congenial for him to direct, by all means, let him do so. If not, uh, let him find the right person to do it for him. I agree. <laughs> What about directors' careers? It's easy, you know, when we read or listen to, to your criticism, it's easy to talk about an actor's performance in relation to another performance or a writer's work as it's developed. Do you notice directors' work developing along uh, clearly definable lines, or do you feel that most directors' work changes depending on the material they're confronted with? I think as you go along, you come to trust some directors uh, in their efforts at serving the play. Uh, I think of Mike Nichols offhand. I, I think he has a track record of not making a statement as a director or making himself a star. He is trying to interpret that play as best he can. Uh, and directors like him, uh, when you see their names on a playbill, 
<clears throat> you come to trust their word, that, that they're doing the best they can to be servants of the flesh. Uh, sometimes it's hard to tell, though. Uh, for instance, you'll see a, a performer. Five or six years in a row, you'll see a performer who will be consistently awful in one play after another. And we've all seen certain performers who have certain mannerisms, bad ones, that they display time after time after time. And then suddenly you see this performer doing a performance that is completely alien to what the performer has done in the past, and it's good. And you're amazed, saying, gee, I didn't even know that that person could act that well. And then you look and see who the director Maybe this director got this person to act for the first time in that performance life. So uh, you, you get to trust certain directors, and at the same time, you get to fear others. Director <laughs> 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 Can I ask you a question? Since, since my guess is that Doug won't show up, wouldn't it be sensible if we all yes. moved over so yes. Erica wouldn't have to oh. contort herself? Oh, okay. <laughs> Erica, did you want to talk about that since your interest maybe has been with uh, following directors who maybe had a more strong interpretive? Sorry. Oh, okay. We've never had this large crowd, so we're not quite used to the acoustics in here. Oh, that's an idea. Maybe. Oh, okay, go. fine. <laughs> I'm a director, too. And we'll all make an effort to speak up. So what about this following directors' careers and, and seeing trends in their work? The problem is that the directors who <laughs> what? What? Oh. <laughs> the staging problem. Actually, he should sit right there. Now, most of the directors whose work I've followed over a long time have been director creators, so it isn't so much watching their progress simply as stage directors, but their whole oh. aesthetic progress. But hasn't someone like yeah. Peter Brook, for instance, changed his modus operandi considerably from when oh, he started? Yes. His productions have been pared down, and, and he emphasizes different values now. Yeah, but I don't know whether that's a matter of watching a career or the development of someone's aesthetic and, in his case, his religious life and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's like a little mini theater history, but on the more workmanlike, work person-like level. The trouble is that I don't go to enough of the commercial and non-profit theater where people freelance. Watch I can uh -huh. talk about some specifics, but I'm going to save them for later. Oh. Well, I don't know. Uh, on that subject, again, uh, <clears throat> I, I think the best director in the world 
no matter what he does, it's not going to make a, a good play out of some, out of a bad play. He needs a good play to work with. And uh, of late, in the last couple of years, the theater, by and large, on Broadway has been so weak that uh, it's hard to follow the course of any particular director's work. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I was so fascinated with the answers that I forgot the question. What was the question? <laughs> Uh, and you've probably had the most history for this, so have you seen directors' work develop along clear lines? The way a writer's work can start out rough and, and trying to find certain themes and then expressing them more deeply and more eloquently. Have you watched directors' work that way and develop that way, or do most directors just get influenced by the text that they're working with? I think everything is possible. Uh, one assumes that people are flexible enough to adapt their style of directing to the style of the work, though I realize that's a pious wish not often met with, but in theory it should be possible. Uh, it is also possible for a director to evolve over a um, period of um, years and experiences it's also possible for a director not to evolve and to be exactly the same in, in everything he or she does. Um, so all those things are possible, and it's up to the uh, critic to be astute enough and have enough longevity, and above all, to have a little memory, which I find very few critics do. But if they do, um, then they can sort of put all those things together and figure out what's going on. Um, I don't think that, in a theory, that's not an interesting question. I think that question is only interesting when you're looking at someone's work and say, has this person changed? Has this person been flexible? If so, how? If not, why not? And so on. But to generalize about it. Well, what about, is there a director whose work you've watched that you thought has developed admirably and, and any, the director has found greater depth in their approach to I hate to say this, but, but those whose work has noticeably changed have, in my opinion, usually changed for the worse. Because somehow, but I think that may have to do with, with psychology, with human, and therefore, I'm sorry to say, also critical psychology, to wit, if something gets noticeably or appreciably worse, from your point of view, obviously not, eternities or gods or the stars, um, then, you, then, you, then you sit up and then it bothers you and then you bristle and then you start putting two and two together. If the thing merely evolves, if the thing merely stays to be more or less what it was, only it's better now, it's more polished, it's smoother, it's uh, more effectual, uh, that you tend not to notice. You sort of take that a little bit for granted because you assume that as people get older and more experienced and wiser and more skillful, uh, they will do slightly the same thing, only better. Now, of course, that leaves the third possibility that someone really changes his or her style to uh, an appreciable extent. But I'm afraid in many, I mean, a sort of overall style, I'm saying, now, some kind of or underall style, I don't know what to call it, that I think usually, to my way of thinking, tends to spell, uh, if not disaster, at least um, at least discomfort. 
because what that usually means is is trendiness. That usually means that you're adapting as a director to uh, the trends. And more often than not, that's, to my way of thinking, not a good state of affairs. What are the trends, though, that you object to? Well, the most obvious trend in directing <coughs> is what has been called director's theater. Now, I quite agree with, with uh, Erica that if we're dealing with people like Richard Foreman or, um, or um, Wilson or people of that sort, direction is essentially all there is. There's obviously no writing qua writing involved, or very little, if any. So um, that's a different ballgame. But aside from leaving that aside for the moment, there is such a thing as director's theater, which is most to my way of thinking, painfully evident in France, but there's plenty of evidence of it everywhere else as well, which is a case of the directors rewriting the play uh, to suit the needs of his megalomania, exhibitionism, uh, whatever. But mostly, mostly not so much megalomania and exhibitionism, although certainly those as well, as a kind of frustrated writerliness that cannot produce texts, therefore has to rewrite other people's texts. We see that among editors, too, <laughs> who rewrite their um, authors or uh, whatever, journalists or whoever they are, uh, writing. And it's understandable. It just isn't pardonable. Uh, and, uh, and there's an awful lot of that, where somebody says, okay, I'm now going to do King Lear on roller skates, or I will, we will now do uh, whatever it is, a, um, what, uh, let's say, a medieval mystery play as though it were, uh, as a rock musical or whatever. And on very, very rare occasions, this sort of thing works, but not very often. And worse than that, is where there is no clear-cut concept as such, but where the director rewrites things in terms of rearranging the order of scenes, cutting things, adding things, uh, uh, not, in other words, conceiving anything global or, or complete, but only having itsy-bitsy brilliant touches right and left, which nevertheless get into the way of the play. That is particularly, I think, uh, deleterious. Okay. The director, on the other hand, uh, can be a force for good in getting the author to rewrite a play or a scene that is weak, that needs to be punched up or whatever. Uh, Abe Barrows once told me that uh, when he wrote Guys and Dolls, uh, time and time and time again, George S. Kaufman, the director, forced him to rewrite. He said, uh, this is a fine gag. This is a $5 gag. But the audience is paying $10, and they deserve a $10 gag. So, <laughs> so go back and do it again. Yeah, but you can only do that with living authors. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little harder. With that. And director's theater, by no coincidence, I think, <laughs> it always works with dead authors. <laughs> Sometimes it works briefly with 
living authors who then go somewhere else. Who then die as a result. <laughs> you were talking about uh, director's theater as a trend. Uh, the trend that bothers me the most today in the theater, although this doesn't apply per se to directing, is the empty theater we're getting especially on Broadway, where for the last couple of years we've been getting these packages, these huge, costly packages of material that have a lot of staging and a lot of icicles and gloss and nothing in them. And I don't know if that's uh, directly relevant to, to the art of directing, but it seems to me uh, we're getting these empty packages of nothing that stand for theater. And um, it's one of the worst trends that's been going on on Broadway for three years now. One of the reasons when I go to Broadway, which is not too often, I have a hard time sometimes writing about the direction, is that on Broadway, unlike smaller scale theater, I don't know exactly how responsible the director is for what happens and how much the money people are really telling the director what to do. So I feel, gee, it's unfair to dump on somebody who really is following orders. And I don't know this. Well, these it's days I difficult. think the director has much more say. That's an issue with the union, is that yeah. 50 years ago the producer would come in and, and make the orders. And frequently the producer was the director, George Abbott, for instance. But nowadays, I think when a director comes in, the director looks at him or herself as an artist and so doesn't want to be pushed around in that way. But on the other hand, if only certain kinds of material is being done on Broadway and a lot of money is involved, the director will know perfectly well that if certain kinds of results aren't produced, that may be the last job. I mean, it doesn't have to be orders given. It's an entire... Atmosphere. True. I know. Uh, I had a question. I think most people would agree that a great actor can improve a mediocre play. But you said something before about uh, you didn't think a director could really improve a mediocre play. Oh, I didn't say a I said I don't think a director could make a good play out of a bad one. He might uh -huh. be able to improve it. Uh -huh. But the play is the thing, and if it's a lousy play, uh, the best direction in the world is not going to make it into a good play. Do you all agree with that? Or if you yeah, if it's yeah. stated as black and whitely as that, certainly. Uh -huh. uh, well, what about the gray area? Yeah, well, in the gray area, <laughs> I think Stuart already said that there it is possible to change something from Oxford Gray to Cambridge Gray. <laughs> but it, I don't know, the overall issue, which is really the, the most fascinating one, is, and I don't know whether you've asked this question already or whether you're saving it for a tremendous climax and whether I'm, I'm anticipating it, the, the tremendous issue is how does a critic tell where the director's work begins and where does it end, or where doesn't it mm -hmm. enter into it at all. Uh, and that is extremely hard, if not impossible, to judge. Um, and I was thinking about this all morning. Uh, 
with relevance to, uh, with reference to this. And mind you, I have thought about it even before this morning. <laughs> oh, it's good to know. It's very, very hard. And now, from something you said, I, I sort of almost think that maybe one, even if a director, were, even if a reviewer were there at every rehearsal of the play, maybe he still wouldn't know what's going on unless he were in the offices of the producers and in the various backstage areas and so on. Nevertheless, I think what we have to assume is that a director gets a lot of credit for things that he hasn't done. Very often, if an actor is tremendous, the director reaps the benefit. Very often, if a playwright's stage directions are tremendous, the director reaps the benefit. So there are many circumstances in which the director gets um, line-ups that he doesn't really deserve. Therefore, I think it's only fair that in some cases he should get knocks that he doesn't deserve either. It sort of evens out in the end. Uh, it's rather what Anatole France said about justice. He said, if uh, instead of elaborate legal procedures, we just had names of uh, people up for trial in a hat and we pulled out these and said these are guilty and we pulled out some other and said those are innocent, it wouldn't really change the a march of justice in any appreciable way. Um, so what happens, I think, is that as long as they're directors, and they shall be nameless, but you probably know who they are, and I think some of them are very famous, who have become leading directors in the American theater, and what's even more amazing in the American cinema, who, to every actor who has ever worked with them, are known to sit back somewhere in the back of the theater and not open their mouths during rehearsals, or if so, barely. And the actors and the technicians do all the work, and in the end, so-and-so gets the benefit of a brilliant piece of directing. As long as that's possible, I think an occasional mistake about blaming the director is also allowable. I think a, dire I think a director should give credit for it. I mean... Uh, if a production, it's like a, a manager of a ball club. You know, uh, the ball club's going great. You say, well, so-and-so is a great manager. He may not do anything. The players go out. And, but if the production works, it works. And the uh, direction directed. Why not? Should take I remember uh, George Abbott once said that uh, he was in a show where the director once did absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And during rehearsals, uh, when the actors came in and wanted to know where should they stand, the director said, uh, go anywhere on the stage where you feel comfortable. Abbott said there was a great rush for the center of the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if it works, uh, fine. Well, it works I, with centripetal yeah. plays, but what about centrifugal ones? <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> I was shocked when I first came back to New York and started reviewing, which I'd never done before. I'd always been a theater editor, as an editor in a theater magazine. And I'd be assigned to review some play, a new play. I couldn't buy a copy of it. I'd call the press agent and say, hey, send me a script. They say, no, you're not allowed to read it before you've seen it. And I say, well, you know, gee, the, the uh, 
director is supposed to be interpreting between me and the script, among other things. And I will really be able to tell what's happening much better if I've read it in advance. And I couldn't believe, and I still find it hard to believe, the resistance I always got on this issue. And either it's just plain anti-intellectualism or mindlessness or some terrible fear that the theater and the director will be found out doing something, like cutting something or changing something. And yet that's really what's interesting. I remember I went to see a production at the Phoenix of Boto Strauss's Big and Little. And I happened to have seen a year or two before a production by Peter Stein at the Schaubühne in Berlin with an actress, I think, is the greatest actress in the world, Edith Klaver. And I was able to write about the Phoenix production, well, meanly, but at least well-informedly. Other people weren't even, I mean, they would have had to dig up a Xerox of a translation from somebody. And I think that overall mindlessness makes it very difficult to tell what's going on sometimes. And most major changes in scripts are always in the direction of simplification, vulgarization, banality, psychology. That's the, the hard part. Well, it was very easy to be mean about being a little, even if one hadn't seen the Peter Stein. <laughs> yeah, but it, I could be mean in a different way. I knew what they had done. The thing, no. No. At the risk of sounding basic, uh, I don't want to know the script before I go into especially a new play. I mean, if it's a revival, I'd like to know something about the circumstances of the play in which it was first written and performed. But I think one of the elements of theater that makes it such a joy is surprise. And uh, I don't want to know the script when I go into a new play. I want the play to speak for itself and hit me cold. So um, that prevents me from knowing too much about the direction what went into the show. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, I want the play to speak for itself and hit me cold when I go in. Well, I think both arguments, there are arguments on both sides of the fence that are equally plausible on that particular issue. Because um, obviously when you're going to see a play like what? Like uh, Hamlet, there'll be fairly few reviewers who have not had some previous acquaintance yeah. with it. Although More than you some. think. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I said, fa- I said fairly few, which is a number that's open to discussion. Um, on the other hand, so then you might say, well, if this obtains for Hamlet, why shouldn't it also obtain for something more recent than that? And where do you draw the line? Is a play that was written five years ago that's now being done a uh, fair game for previous knowledge on the part of the critic, or only a play that's written ten years ago or two years ago. It's, it's, it's very hard to determine these things. I think something is to be gained by approaching the thing freshly, because then you know exactly as much or as little as the public and experience it their way. But likewise, something is to be said for uh, knowing a little more than the public, especially considering how much the public knows these days. 
or anybody's facts are, so it's very hard to say what is right and what's wrong. And I sympathize with, uh, with either position. Uh, my own practice is that I'm so busy that I usually don't have the time to read a brand new script before I see the play, even if I wanted to, and I'm not sure that I particularly want to. On the other hand, if it is a very, very difficult play, and if I know ahead of time that it's something that's, that demands enormous things from the viewer or reviewer either, maybe it would be a good idea to read it, and in some cases I've done it. Uh, but in those cases, it's usually hard to get hold of the text because there's always some roadblock there. I do think, though, that after anyone's reviewed for a few years, I mean, I've seen it on the Younger Voice reviewers, after about nine months of gestation, then they become people who are no longer in any way like the ordinary public. I mean, there's no way to put yourself back into that, I think. I'm so that it's disingenuous to say, I can't read this because it separates me from most people's experience. Well, no one could be exactly like yeah. the public, thank God, but one could resemble them in some ways. That's about all. Yeah. I'm curious to know how you, as a theater professional, feel about critics knowing something or nothing about your play before they go see it. Would you prefer critics to know more about your production before they go to see it? Or would you like them to uh, just go in and see it like everyone else for the first time? Careful with such I questions. Everybody's going to rush center stage. <laughs> and right. I suspect every director's secret dream if he's working on a new play is to be able to submit the script that he that he first saw and then let them judge the final production uh-huh. By what he did with the script. Anyone else, Gina? Well, the same sort of comment. We, we make a big distinction between the script, which is all you could ever get, and the production, which is the play. Mm-hmm. It takes an audience to, to work. But I get the general feeling that uh, certainly among producers, they have nervous breakdowns if uh, a critic gets to even come near the theater before that critic's performance is scheduled. Uh, they don't want critics to be involved with the play at all <laughs> until the final moment. But that's different from reading. Yeah. So, I mean, that ideally, ideally, really fine criticism would also, I think, involve going to a couple of rehearsals and all this stuff. But there's so much tension and so between critics and people in theater now, that that would be impossible. If there were 25 newspapers, then, I mean, I would certainly press to, if there's something I was terrifically interested in and wanted to write a long piece about, I'd want to talk to the director and the actors and see the the rehearsals and everything, to do it justice. The trouble is, it's it's all, I mean, um, unless you're, Frank Rich of the Times, on whom producers dance attendance, it's not easy to get hold of a script, a new, a brand new script, before you go to the theater. It can be virtually or even actually impossible. Or unless you're Clive Barnes, where the assumption is you'll be sleeping through the actual production, it's better to to get the poor joker to read it ahead of time, assuming that he can stay awake while he's reading it. 
Do you think that's a privilege they have for the most part, though? Sleeping? With, no. <laughs> getting a hold of new scripts. I think if you're if you're a so-called powerful critic, I think you probably can get it. And if you're a so-called impotent critic, then I think it's um, it's not so easy. But if you're a critic who reviews things that don't otherwise get reviewed, or works for a paper which does that, it's also possible to get scripts sometimes by yelling and stamping one's foot. New play also, uh, under the pressures we're under now and everything else, is sometimes when it's frozen and by the time the critics come in, it's only a matter of two days, two or three days, you know, where the text would be changed. If that. You know, up until they say curtain. Well, but even then it's useful to see where the text began, even if you don't see the exact same thing. Do any before we open up to the audience? Do do you want to uh, talk any more about the the actual criteria you use to separate the director's work when you write or report about it, or do you just make passing reference to it? I think we've all mentioned it one time or another. Um, well, what are the things? Pacing, it's consistency. It's so difficult to, to pull apart and say what a director is specifically responsible. Did he create this piece of business? Was it the actor who did it? Was it the stage direction written by the playwright? It's hard to really know unless you attended the rehearsal and saw day by day how it came mm -hmm. to be. But I think you can say the director is responsible for the overall interpretation and mood and execution of the play. Um, to not to contradict anything, because I agree with everything everybody said, even what I said. Uh, uh, nevertheless, I think we should uh, add that it is true that if we know the work of actors from previous uh, productions, we can subtract or add accordingly from what we are seeing now. If we know the work of set designers and costume designers and lighting designers, and if we are good enough to remember what we have seen, that's a very big if, uh, then likewise we can uh, make allowances in those areas for what might or might not be the uh, director's work. Uh, if we know the work of the director from a fairly long series of uh, previous directing jobs, again, we are likely to uh, have some notion of what may be his trademark or benchmark or hallmark or black mark or whatever kind of mark, uh, and um, so on. So there is that we, we can sort of guess and feel our way into it to some extent. And also, as um, our moderator just said, there are certain things that definitely are the director's job. Pacing is certainly just as with an orchestral concert. I mean, there are many things that we can't be sure about, but the conductor is responsible for the tempo, and so is the stage director. And I suppose blocking, essentially, is, except in the case of this maybe or maybe not mythical director who really didn't say anything, um, blocking tends to be the responsibility of the director. So there are some things which are which are uh, rock-bottom directorial work, and that we can pretty much separate from the rest. Uh, 
Yeah, well, now, of course, I don't know what this casting director business means. In the, in the, in the, old, direct, in the old days, it was simple. There was the director and there was the casting couch. And one could pretty well say which was which. Uh, uh, but now, with the casting director, who is neither quite director nor quite couch, it's, it's, it's much harder to, to, to be sure. But, but the appropriateness of a certain actor in a role, I mean, that is something you can <coughs> the director's figure yeah, out. It's his final decision, isn't it? This is the, the, the producer also casting, especially the actor. I mean, someone has to take responsibility for casting, and it's almost never the actor. I mean, therefore, often the actor's work is criticized which is unfortunate because that actor didn't cast him or herself, which gets back into criticism. I think of actors with really wasn't their responsibility. But the actor accepts the role. I mean, yes. they make a stab at it, just like... Um, I didn't understand the remark before um, about sending the critic the play and then how much better the director did it, because... I mean, if you play off every part of a production against each other, it will put critics in a very powerful position, almost like the third grade teacher who is giving approval here and there, when probably <coughs> critics just want to see a graceful production and better ones where the whole production is working together. I'm not sure of this, but I was shocked at that. But isn't the nature of, yes. of your jobs to break it apart a bit and dissect mm -hmm. it? Of course. Well, no, I don't mean it's their fault. It's that, that if each part of each part of the production is playing for the critic, and they're all competing and making everything too loud or crying for attention. You may have some of these spectacles that you were talking about before. But I mean, doesn't everyone try to do his best uh, yeah. in any case? As teamwork. Yeah, but um, still, um, I don't see that there's some, there's an inherent contradiction there. Whether you are playing it for the critic, or whether you're playing it for the audience, or whether you're playing it, perish the thought, for the poor dead playwright, whatever you're doing, you're trying to do, each person is trying to do his best, and presumably the director sees to it that one person's best shouldn't step on the other person's best's feet. And if that is done, then I see no problem. Robert. is not words on paper. A play is the form element that we witness. And the difficulty I see with getting scripts ahead or looking, unless it's fallen into the realm of literature like Shakespeare, but if you're talking with new scripts or plays that are happening, the final product, the performance, is the play. And I, you know, most people can't read scripts. A script is words on paper. It is not the product. And if you read it first, don't know how to read it, it can really get in the way of experiencing what happens on the stage. Do you think there might be moments, conceivably, when when these critics and other people who don't know how to read words on a page might be able to discern that certain words on a page are not so good, <laughs> and certain other, be, others yeah. might be very good? Okay. <laughs> I also think it's odd that you talk about things falling into literature. Yes. Yeah. 
after having viewed the play, and we probably would be pleasant for a critic to take the sufficient time to actually have the, the text, the actual text of that final version. Because obviously that happens if it's a Nibson play and you have the evening to do it, you go back to look at that text somewhere. I agree with you, though. And the first speaker about it is words on a page, and what speaks is the play that's on stage. So, well, yeah. two two things have to be said. One is that it may be that uh, Joe Blow, who runs a um, copyright uh, cosmetics business, doesn't know how to read a play. But one assumes, at least theoretically, that the critic can read a play off, off the page. Number one. Number two, I was surprised at this thing. If the play is literature, like Shakespeare, if the play is any good, it will become literature, if not today, then tomorrow. And I don't distinguish between plays that are literature and plays that are not literature. They're only bad plays and good plays. They're all literature of some kind, except, I suppose, Robert Wilson and Happenings and things like that, but those I don't consider plays. Why do you say that, though? I mean... Those texts can be, Richard Foreman's work is, people are starting to touch it besides him. I mean, those are texts that can be looked at. They may be skimpy, but I think there's, uh, there's a structure and there's, there are words that are indelible and, and won't change. Certainly, Robert Wilson's work in the opera has, someone else could take that. Yeah, well, of course, but there's too many else. images. There's somebody else wrote the text. If it's Robert Wilson's, if you mean Robert Wilson were to direct what an opera that already pre-exists, is that or, or a new opera? Well, no, I'm calling this right for his Civil yeah. Wars and opera. Well, yeah, but of course, then, <laughs> then you would have to in, 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 in something of that nature. Then you would have to know what Lucinda Childs contributed. You'd have to know what. Um, so-and-so contributed, uh, it's, it's it, about 10% of what you see on stage, I suppose, is really down on paper, I would guess. Mm. And 90 is not. Whereas with what I consider a play, uh, I would say 90 is down on the, on, the pa on the page and 10 is perhaps up to the director. So therefore that makes it... And that's why I would like to distinguish between two kinds of, uh, of um, art form. I would say that theater, as, as I understand theater, is something else. And this, uh, Foreman and Wilson and Shaken and whoever they all are, Schechter uh, Shek, or Schechner or whoever, is something else again. And it's perfectly legitimate, and by all means, let it exist. But I think a wholly different sort of people should uh, review it and address themselves to it, because I don't think the people who really understand and care for the one thing are likely to be equally are competent to deal with the other. And it's one of those unfortunate things that many publications only have one reviewer, and you're forced into reviewing the sort of thing for which you have no, no training, no interest, no sympathy. I find this, that a very arbitrary distinction. Obviously, there's a continuum at each end. They're extremely different things. But Schechner, for instance, almost entirely directed scripts by other people. Some of them he took a lot of liberties with, to say the least. Like the Barclay. Also the <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and some of them he didn't. 
he didn't mess around with Mother Courage very much. And Joe Chaikin used to have a playwright working with him. Now he directs Antigone. I mean, they're really, when it comes to happenings, I think people with very good eyes are probably the best to review it. But I, to say that all, the, basically all the experimentation of the 60s and after isn't theater, it's such an old argument. Can't even get into it. But I think it's wrong. Well, I'm an old person, so. Not well, so am I. I've been doing this for 22 years. Next so let's question. not. But you were a child prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> Just around that question, for part of the audience here, what about the choreographer's work? Do you feel that that requires uh, a different kind of perception? <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> Any comment about no, the, the way you approach the choreographer's part of a, work? They're part of a, again, part of a collaborative effort, although certainly, I think more than any other technician, the uh, choreographers seem to have their own trademarks that become readily available. Uh, I say more than any other, I think, technician in the theater, the choreographers have their own distinctive style that seems to stay reasonably the same. You come to recognize the style of Bob Fosse dancing and so on. But again, it's all part of a collaborative effort. Well, as someone who has occasionally had the temerity to write about ballet, uh, I think I'm perhaps a little more interested in choreography, perhaps a little more, what, engrossed with it than, than people who have not shown that particular interest. Uh, yeah, I think with choreographers, I agree with Stuart that, that certainly the, even the best choreographers obviously have a, a certain style, because what would they be if they didn't have a style? Uh, but certainly the uh, average choreographers are very much a uh, somewhat limited, somewhat repetitious, somewhat how should I say, arrested development kind of style, which may happen to work very well, or it may not happen to work very well. For one, for one Balanchine, who uh, changes tremendously over the years, there's always, let's say, a Michael Kidd who does not. Uh, not one, but, uh, but tens or dozens or hundreds of those. Um, although Michael Kidd isn't bad, I don't know why I picked him. Um, but still, he's not Balanchine, I think we can agree on that. So yes, there is a there is a very distinctive choreographic style, which even a um, how should I say a non terpsichoreanly uh, inspired critic can can perceive and, and evaluate, and it's probably easier, in fact, to to speak about a typical choreography with simple and yet appropriate words than it is about direction or or lighting. It's very hard to speak about lighting. And, and I think the greatest foolishness in, in dramatic criticism probably has been written about lighting. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think, I think choreography is, is, is definitely something that we can recognize, and I wish more critics would address themselves more to it. And again, I'm very surprised that someone like Clive Barnes, who theoretically ought to know about choreography, um, I'm speaking theoretically, of course, um, should so very, very seldom 
say anything in his drama reviews uh, that has any choreographical uh, relevance. One last question before we open the floor to questions. And this doesn't have to do with direction, but do you perceive yourselves as journalists more as reporters, historians, or commentators and essayists? I mean, is that a question you even face when you approach your work, or is it something you've resolved long ago? Well, the only time, the only time I consider myself a journalist is in front of a customs officer who asks me, what's your profession? Uh, and if I were to say critic, obviously, I would have to go into a long song and dance. And since I'm neither a composer nor a choreographer, I prefer just to say uh, journalist, and then I assume you'll know what I'm talking about, more or less. Otherwise, I consider it an insult to be called a journalist by anyone else except customs officer. Um, and uh, I think a critic, if he really is a critic, is a writer and not a journalist. And I think the problem with so many of our so-called critics is that, that they can't write. Beyond that, that they can't think. Beyond that, that they don't have any experience of the subject uh, that they're supposed to know something about. But mostly that they're not writers. And I think critical writing is just a branch of writing. I assume that novelists think about their writing. I assume that poets think about their writing. I assume that critics think about their writing. And then I further assume that all of these, all of the above, try to write as well as they possibly can, which I admit is sometimes difficult if you have only 40 minutes in which to do the writing. But then that raises certain questions. Can a 12-year-old be a critic? Can a person who has 12 minutes in which to uh, write a piece of criticism be a critic? I mean, those are thorny questions. Uh, nevertheless, I think critics are writers and uh, should be judged as writers in terms of how thoughtful their writing is, how perceptive their writing is, how artistic their writing is, and, and so on. I think uh, that the essence of good criticism, the essence of it, good reporting. I think if you report as factually as possible what you have seen, what takes place on that stage, by the mere accuracy of your reporting, you will illustrate whether a play succeeds or fails and why it succeeds and fails. Uh, so I think the answer to your question is, yes, I do consider myself a journalist. Uh, and I also think it can be done in a short period of time, perhaps not with the style uh, that you'd like to devote to it, but essentially you can do your job and do it well in the short space and time that I have to do it in. Well. <clears throat> I'm absolutely happy to think of myself as a journalist. I love being a journalist. And uh, I'm in a very fortunate situation at The Voice in that there are lots of us, and we can all go about to different things and combine objectivity 
now and then. I don't mean in the same piece. With just letting our biases show. I mean, I think I would have a terrible time being the only writer on a publication because I want people to know that I'm a feminist, that I'm a socialist, that I think certain things about certain kinds of aesthetics. I want it all to be clear. I think it's the best possible thing for readers is to know who the critic is and then to be able to say, well, this critic says this about this play and I can read through it and get to my own opinion. That's where the objectivity comes. You have to be accurate enough to allow people to do that and open enough, again, to allow them to do it. I don't see why journalism is such a terrible thing. Oh, it's it's a wonderful thing if you're reporting on crime or if you're reporting on politics or if you're reporting on... When you're reporting on theater, sometimes you're doing both. (laughs) (laughs) But, of course you're doing both. But the trouble is you're also doing 200 more things than that. And unless you can do all 202 things, I don't think you're a critic. And if you're not a critic, then I don't think it's worth it. Um, I've... I've, um, I suppose there's there's some excuse for being a reviewer, but which is really being a journalist. Um, but I think not much. I think you're either a critic or or, or you're a super auditor, essentially, because if you're going to depend on a journalist to report merely to say what he or she has seen there on the stage, in most cases that journalist isn't even able to do that. The ones who try to do that are the ones who precisely cannot do that in most cases. Second, it's not humanly possible to be a camera and record things. Or partially agree and partially disagree with, and use the critic uh, as he or she sees fit. In other words, saying that X, critic X, is very good at comedy, but I don't think he understands much about tragedy, uh, or conversely, our critic Y is very good at farce and comedy, but if it's a serious play, I can't take him seriously, or so on. So you sort of, you read more than one critic, if you read critics at all, uh, and you make adjustments, you make allowances. Uh, people are always asking me, as a sort of language person, which dictionary should they use? And I tell them there's no such thing as a really good dictionary. You have to own several and look the word up in all of them and then decide on that basis. But I think a critic who does not have a strong opinion, who does not have a, a strong bias, although I hope the bias is one for excellence as he or she perceives it, uh, is not a very interesting critic. And the person who just say, I, I had lots of laughs here, or in the traditional Rex Reed fashion, this is the funniest thing I've seen in years, that's on Monday, and on Wednesday something else comes along, and this is the funniest thing I've seen ever, and on Friday something comes along, and this is the funniest thing I've seen whole, the whole week. That, to me, is, is useless, and that's what you get from so-called journalists for the most part. But it's not only a question of comedy and tragedy, of this style, that style, this form, that form. I think what's more interesting, especially to readers, is people's points of view. Anyone would know 
that if you went to see a feminist play and I went to see a feminist play, we might have very different reactions. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, they would read these reactions for what they are and then find beneath them some accurate reportage of how it was done also. This is ideal. Well, I agree with you except on two things. Uh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, you, in a sense, you're saying the same thing I said, only in a different style, which is precisely, I think, what makes us perhaps critics of the reporters, that we can say the same thing in a rather different way. Uh, the one thing I disagree with is that if you read Erica Monk and John Simon and listen to Stuart and read Frank Rich and listen to Gene Child, whoever they all are, uh, and then look at what's at the bottom of all the confluences that sort of emerge mm. underneath all this. Uh, yeah, that is precisely what we do look for. But what then comes out is not what I would call reportage. I think what then comes out is something that, however, in however gingerly fashion, I would like to call the possible truth. Uh, the possible truth. Uh, what is the real truth? The real truth is what will be true a hundred years from now. But of that, unfortunately, we don't know because we won't be around. But the possible truth, what might be true about this play a hundred years from now, that's one thing I disagree with. And so calling it reportage. And the other thing I disagree with is your use, your usage of hopefully. I told okay. myself I'd swear at you in several if you did that. It's too foul. My style has been called many things. <laughs> but this is the first I've ever been compared with Haiku Poe. Listen, I, I know. I, it's an imperfect world. Uh, I work for a daily television news program. I'm given usually about two minutes to say what I have to say. And I don't have much time to do it. Sure, I'd like to talk for a half hour about a play, and I'd like to have a week to write it. Well, I don't. So I do the best I can under the circumstances. And try, try to shed a little truth. No, I agree. It's, a, it's an imperfect world. It's just that there are so many people making it even more imperfect. <laughs> <laughs> Irma? Yes, I, I'd like to get back a little bit to your perception of the role of the director. I'm still unclear as to <laughs> what you think a director does. And I'm, I think maybe that's because maybe you don't agree or because you are unclear as to what a director does. Because even at the base point, would you not agree that if, as, if nothing else, anything that does appear on the stage must be approved by the director or something appear on the stage? Absolutely. So if something is there, and it's just marvelous. And you say, well, I don't know if this will be this person or this person. It's still, the assumption could possibly still be made that it wouldn't be there unless it, it was approved by the director. 
Also, if it were horrendous, even if an actor came up with it or a stage team or anybody, if it were horrendous and the director allowed it on the stage, the director must take responsibility for that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the director has ultimate responsibility, but now that I've watched the process a lot more, I've run into many cases. I'll talk to a friend of mine who's a director who says, oh my God, the lighting design that came out, and we're opening in two days, and it's all orange. And either I fire him and find somebody else, or I have to go along, because after all, we're all artists working together. Especially, of course, in small budget, off-off-Broadway productions. That's where it gets difficult. It gets, and it gets it's I think more difficult when something like that happens on a first-time relationship. But as you go, go along and you have certain people that you're somewhat used to working with, you know yeah. that two days before you open, you're not going to have all women's parts. Yeah. And if you do, it, there has to be something within you as a director to sit that person down and make them see something of what you're trying to see. And if they missed it before, try to get it back. So mm -hmm. even if it is two days before and you can't fire them, it's your function as a director mm -hmm. to somehow get something out of that designer that's going to work for you. You must do it. Mm -hmm. I, again, I, I, I don't like to put all this on the director as the director is the know-all, but you can make it or you can break it. I really feel that way as a director. And you have to take the responsibility. You can't, you know, run away and say, oh, this isn't what I wanted, this isn't what I wanted. And that happens a lot. Didn't want it too bad. You got it, and deal with it, and hope hopefully you'll know better next time. Or take the person, tap them on the hand, and get what you can to get it changed. It's your responsibility. <laughs> well then, but then the role of the director is to interpret the play as intelligently and as beautifully as possible. And of course, that's very now because there are so many different ways of doing it. <laughs> but that's just a different name for the same, a lot of the same tasks, isn't it? <laughs> Someone has to coordinate it. Someone has to set things and make decisions yeah. about the way it's going to look. But there's a difference between coordinating and administrating and making art. And yes. maybe that, that's what you're talking about. It's the presence of the second artist in addition to the playwright. I don't know. <laughs> yes.
play is not that good. But the, the critic, very kindly and correctly, has, a point, has pointed out that certain athletes' performances were quite good. I forget that nine times out of ten, especially when you see, and I've read it many times, you see a number of those actors being um, complimented. The director, there's no mention of the director. And what it means is Troy, in fact, the director is the person who's been fighting the playwright to, to try to get the play to work, and at the same time, keeping the actors together, because actors are also intelligent, and they know they're doing something that's not going to work, and so get the best performance out of them. Well, again, it's it's really hard to know. In many cases, who is responsible? Is the did this performance spring out of the actor? Did it spring from the director? Was it a collaboration of the two? I mean, it, I don't know. What? I agree with you. Okay, the, the, the director made the wise choice in choosing this actor who gave a terrific performance. Uh, was the director responsible for this performance? I don't know. But on the other hand, okay, I agree with you. But don't you think actors have saved themselves on their own in productions where the director's idea were they were misguided? I don't. I don't know. I, I wouldn't agree with that. I don't. Know. I would definitely. As I say, I know of some very famous directors whom I don't want to name. What's the point? Uh, who are? I mean, you can't help them anymore. They're too old, a bunch of dogs to teach them new tricks, particularly if they had no tricks to begin with. Uh, uh, and if they're the kind of director who sits back there and says nothing and says to the actors, "Go ahead and." do what comes natural or improvise or or do what feels comfortable to you. And there's, uh, there's scads of them. Uh, uh, and well, but then you see, then what have they done? They've done one thing only. They have picked, they've been lucky enough somehow to pick the right actors for all those parts in that play. And yeah, that's 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 good, but but it's almost a matter of luck because the fact that somebody was good in another play doesn't necessarily mean that unassisted he or she will be good in this play. It does not necessarily mean that at this stage of his or her development, for example, he or she will be good for this play, as might have been the case ten years ago or ten years hence. So that. It's, it's, it's a matter of luck if the director lucks out and has the right cast. And luck, I don't think, should not be given very high grades to. Yes. Well, look, on the other hand, on the other hand, when you see an actor Totally miscast, chewing up the scenery, making a, a, a travesty of a part, then you blame the director because it's something you see. Well, look, luck enters into everything. Um, 
why should it enter into the work of the director? I mean, if, you, if somebody writes a good review, for example, that may to some extent be luck too. To a certain extent, yes. It depends on who the playwright is. If it's Neil Simon, I definitely consider it luck. Uh, but in any case, uh, luck isn't a totally contemptible thing, nor is it insulting to say of someone that he's lucky. I don't think it's as wonderful as to say something else, perhaps, about the person. But lucky isn't the worst thing. Uh, and so I don't think you should feel particularly offended by that word. However, I... You know, I think you can get a you can get a B or B plus for luck. You get A's for something else. A question from this side. Uh, yes, this is a, really a comment. I am also an actor, and I've certainly been in, in plays where the director didn't do a damn thing. Uh, when the magic of what we call theater happens, uh, it's quite understandable that everyone wants to say, "Well, I did it. I'm the actor. I did it." I'm the director, I did it, but I just felt this conversation getting into that, and I think that that would be the end of the discussion for the afternoon, because I think it's impossible to really pinpoint who did it. I think the opening question that began this discussion over an hour ago was over the use of the word seamless. And uh, theater is a collaborative effort, and when it works, it's seamless. Okay, we all agree that it's a joint effort. Yes. In writing your review, how much importance do you give to the reaction of that particular audience? Me? I don't give a damn about my audience. I'm trying to write the best review I can uh, and be as accurate as possible. I mean, reporting what the audience thought of it. Oh, what I think the audience? Yeah. I don't care about the audience at all. Uh, it's the show that counts, and uh, on opening night, if you go often enough, you've discovered over the years that on every single show on opening night, the people stand up and cheer like it's the greatest play that has ever been done. Uh, the curtain can open, and there'll be nothing on the stage except a cardboard tree, and they'll applaud. And uh, the worst song in the world will be get a standing ovation and I'll call for three encores. <laughs> and it goes on and on like that. And uh, you learn quickly enough to divorce yourself from the opening night audience, which is usually composed of backers and their friends anyhow. Uh, so the audience plays, for me, uh, plays no part in that. Not for me. Uh, if anything, it would be that I tend to be a little suspicious of a, of a play that delighted the average audience over much. But that's, <laughs> that's about as far as I might consider it. But I think I really, in all fairness, I have to say a couple of more addenda to what that, the question that that gentleman raised. I think that in the case where the director merely picked the right cast and let them be themselves and things came out swimmingly, I think there the director should be given credit as a great casting director, but not as a director, number one. And number two, if you carry that position too far, then the greatest director of all is Sam Cohn, who packages the whole thing and puts it together, and who even picks the director and picks 
the play and fix the actors and fix the producer, then you could say that's really the great directorial contribution. So I'm for being old-fashioned and saying that directing is you have the actors, you have the technicians, you have the theater, the, the plant, the premises, and now show what you can do with these people. And uh, if the actor is being very good, and you can prove that the actor is better because of something you did, then you get the credit. And if the actor is very good and you cannot prove that you made him or her better, then you don't get much credit, only casting director gets. The man in the back there with the director uh, directs plays that are written by playwrights. I think uh, the director is an interpreter, essentially, and not a, a creative source. Uh, I mean, he, he creates in the, within the role that he has, but uh, I think it's the playwright that's going to change things, not the director. I think, I think yes, is also possible, but it's very difficult in this country at this time, when there aren't any ensemble theaters, when the theaters that used to be innovative have basically fallen apart all around. Theoretically, of course, I, I mean, I don't see interpreting as such a tiny little effort as you see it. Interpreting can mean interpreting the whole idea of theater in society and then reinterpreting society, doing all kinds of things about the audience in a more cheerful fashion than John does. The real difficulty is that there's hardly any way to do this here now. And I think directors, just like reviewers and actors and playwrights, have pulled in and become rather demoralized and feeling unexpansive. Yeah, I, I think this is, I agree, and I think this is where, where the analogy with music is probably used with Concert music is probably useful. Uh, I think the Mahler Ninth will sound different if Karajan is conducting and different if Tenstedt is conducting, for example. But it's got to sound like the Mahler Ninth. And if it sounds like something else, then I don't care who the conductor is. It's, it's bad business. And it may sound more brilliant because X was the wielded the baton, and it may sound rather undistinguished because why wielded the baton? And within those perimeters, and please not parameters, within those perimeters I think the conductor or the director is very important. But beyond that, if, if the Mala Ninth begins to sound like Penderecki, then I think we're in trouble and then the director is to be blamed. Yes, over there. So I have a uh, two-word question. Really. Getting back to that nugget of truth that we were all talking about a moment ago, uh, who is the audience that this nugget of truth is directed towards? Is it your fellow colleagues? Is it those of us in the community who are trying to pursue our craft and perhaps better it? 
is it the audience who needs to be warned away from or encouraged to attend a particular production? And then based on that answer, I'd like to follow it up if I might. Well, writing specifically to warn or encourage audiences is really doing consumer report. And except in cases of something that's been terrifically hyped, is very expensive, and is ghastly, I try not to do that. Or, in the reverse, something small, <coughs> unreviewed by other people that I think is quite wonderful, I would try to pull. But only at those extremes. I think that it would be very pretentious of me to write directly to try to improve the people I'm writing about craft. Somehow it seems arrogant and wrong. So in the long run, I guess I write for myself in some larger ideas about theater and about the world. You know? That that really has to be it. And of course, everybody writes to impress their colleagues. But that's yeah. not <laughs> you direct to impress your colleagues, too, right? That's different. I would agree with that. That's, 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 this can't happen. <laughs> let's, say, let's say it can happen as long as we are speaking fear. If someone starts speaking practice, then it ceases. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. So, well, we're going to have to break because we have to clear out of here. So thank you all for coming, and thank you all. Thank you for listening to STCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.